Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, just a heads up, this episode has some swearing in it. If you'd like a beeped version, you can find it on our website. Hello, this is the How To Academy podcast, brought to you from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for joining us. Unless you live under a rock, you will have seen one of Michael Schur's whip-smart TV comedies. Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Rutherford Falls are some of the funniest shows of this golden age of television. And best of all is The Good Place, a philosophical comedy about the afterlife whose ensemble cast includes Jamila Jamil as the hilariously obnoxious name-dropping socialite Tahani. Michael has written a new book exploring the big question at the heart of the series. What does it mean to be a good person? Jamila and Michael joined us for a live stream a couple of weeks back to tell us more. Hi Mike, I missed you, it's been a long time. I know, how are you? I'm good, it's been years, right? Well, no one has seen anyone for years, so we were already trying to overcome that barrier. But even before that, when is the last time... Have we actually been in the same place since the show ended? That's my question. No, I think we were on Seth Meyers uh, and the last episode was just about to air and we were saying right. goodbye to the fans and goodbye to the show. And that's right. the last time I saw you. And I remember grabbing you as I think I did at least once every six months and just saying, thank you so much for giving me a job. I think were the last words I said to you. And so I remain grateful Thank you very much. I just want You're to get quite that out welcome. Of the way. Uh, and uh, and we are all grateful for the good place and what that did. I think for the world. Although, I mean, the show ended and then the pandemic started, so that feels like that was your fault. Well, I was about to say that. So that the show went off the air. I think January thirty first, twenty twenty. So we, we were in New York, and we didn't know it at the time, but we were sad that we weren't going to see each other. We didn't realize we weren't going to see anybody. Like that, <laughs> yeah. was, that was that was the shock of of uh, the show ending, and and it really did end up feeling isolating. Although while we were in New York is when I was shopping this book around. I was going and meeting with publishers and saying, "Hey, I I want to write a book about the same subject that the show explored," and. At the time, I was sort of like, man, I don't know if I really have the time to write this book. And then suddenly, I, <laughs> there was nothing else to do. Like I was told, like all, all TV shut down a month later, and we were told to stay in our homes and don't go outside. 
And so bad for the world, uh, good for a person who needs time to write a book. That's the lesson of the pandemic for me. Well, I'm glad it worked out for you, Mike. Okay. It's exactly. We wanted another straight white male to thrive. Um, Happy about a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did all kind of become our own version of Mindy St. Clair, didn't we? We sure did. Yes. We were all in a very medium place uh, at best. That was the best, best we could hope for was a medium 100%. place. Yeah. <laughs> I just more mean all of the um, isolation and the masturbating, I think. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> How has the last two years been for you, other than, <laughs> other than writing this excellent book? Uh, you know, I had the same, I would say, a version of the same anxieties and fears that everybody had. You know, I count myself among the very luckiest humans on earth in terms of like I had a, a home and and shelter and food and I could and my kids were safe and Hollywood shut down for whatever it was, six months, and then got back up and running. We just did it all remotely or we did all the writing remotely. And then thanks to a very large number of very dedicated professionals, we managed to actually shoot stuff, everybody wearing visors and face shields and getting tested eight times a week and everything else. So, I mean, in terms of what different people on earth have to complain about or to be sad about, I'm at the bottom of that list. Like I, I, I really... I really have nothing to complain about given the trauma and anxiety that the whole world has gone through. I mean, I would imagine you feel roughly the same way, right? Like, I mean, it, no, it was, it was very, bad and it was better than hard. it was for everybody else, you know? No, no, it was most hard for me. Um, oh, no, I yeah, see. Of course, of course, of course. <laughs> but I also mean, did it change you in any way? Because I found like, I felt like it made some like profound impacts on, on me and a lot of the people that I know. Like it really does. I mean, not only did we all feel like we aged, about 15 years, but did it have a like kind of emotion, a lasting emotional impact on you? Uh, sure. Yeah, of course it did. I mean, it also was the case that my project for the pandemic was writing a book about ethics. And it, it became very difficult not to make the whole book about the pandemic because the ethical questions that were being asked of all of us, first of all, were the same for everyone, that, which never happens, right? Like mm-hmm. it, literally every human on earth was facing the exact same questions, which is an extraordinarily rare event. And as I was writing the book, I really felt I, I would repeatedly get to situations where I would think like, what's a good way to illustrate this issue? Oh, the pandemic. Like that was, it was just always around. It was always a, some, something that was happening in the world that I could use to explore some ethical dilemma that I was writing about. And I had to restrain myself from making every single chapter like about the pandemic. And I guess that speaks to like the kind of that kind of anxiety, that kind of exhaustion that that has been oppressing all of us for so long now in our day-to-day lives. Like we've never experienced anything like this. We hopefully never will again. Like it was a, I don't know how you could go through something like this and not be changed in some way, shape or form. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I I imagine that must have been absolutely wild to be writing about ethics in a time where it felt like ethics were falling apart the seams. I mean, some people showed their best sides of themselves and, you know, were going out and shopping for those who couldn't go out and shop for themselves. We saw the kind of the best of people and we had like Italians singing to each other on um, terraces. But then we also saw like some of the most deprivation and and just like awful (laughs) selfish behavior unraveling at the same time. That must have just been such an unusual experience to be writing about the exact dilemma that we're in of kind of, you know, one of the main themes of The Good Place is like, what do we owe to each other? And I feel like Mm -hmm. that was like the biggest question of the last two years. 
and it could it couldn't have felt like more of a um just like a split yeah our friend megan amram who was a writer on the good place and a, a very very talented person mm. said at one point early on that COVID 19 was just a black light like it, it sort of revealed things that were always there that we just didn't notice because there was no way to notice them. And I feel like that's a really good analogy because it does feel like what happened in terms of lines being drawn, different behaviors being exhibited, different people choosing different ways to treat other people like that didn't the pandemic didn't cause that it sort of revealed it. Right. And so that's the dispiriting part to me is that when you saw someone screaming and yelling in a grocery store because they wearing a mask is oppressive and, and limits their freedom and blah, 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 blah. Like that person was that way already. It's just that there was no way to express that particular brand of what I would consider selfishness on a day to day basis because no one was restraining, no one was asking anything of that person. Right. And suddenly, the world was saying like, hey, we have to ask something of you, mm. which is do a very, very small thing, like do a very tiny little thing, put a piece of cloth over your mouth and know so that people don't get sick and die. And that apparently was too much for a lot of people. And that that's what felt like it was a like a, just a bummer to me. Like I, I to, to have the number of people who had that approach to relating to other people revealed all at once, uh, that was hard to swallow. And by the way, it remains hard to swallow. Like, I don't, I'm not over it. Like, I still. Well, it's not I over still, as well. Right. It's not over and people are still doing that. And, and it's, you know, you bring up what we owe to each other. That's a, the title of a book that we used on the show a lot by a philosopher named T.M. Scanlon, whose theory was called contractualism. And he basically thought that the way that you design rules for a society is you all sit around a table and you pitch, everybody has a veto for every rule. And people just pitch rules and the ones that pass are the ones that nobody rejects. And this is assuming, and this is kind of a key point, assuming everybody's being reasonable is the word he uses. And he defines- oh, That's reason- the difference between government. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so when you think about it, if you were pitching rules for a society and you said, hey, if there's a deadly pandemic, an unprecedentedly deadly pandemic- we should all agree that we all have to wear masks to limit the spread of the virus. It's hard to imagine how someone would reasonably reject that rule. And yet that's exactly what happened. Like people in real time were rejecting that rule um, over and over and over again. And to the point of, of fury, like of, of madness and fury. And that's what was hard to swallow. I think for me, I think one of the two things that I love, I mean, the reason I love the good place so much and also this book, How to Be Perfect, is because you are doing something much needed, which is that philosophy, I think, like some of the kind of, obviously not all philosophy is is perfect or realistic, but I mean, so much of the most basic tenets of, of philosophy are things that we need so much now. And over the years, philosophy and philosophers have become more and more inaccessible. You know, everything that you saw kind of written at the beginning stages of philosophy was so much easier for most people to digest and, you know, it kind of became... I'm not going to say it's a word salad because who am I to refer to like, a, a great esteemed <laughs> educated person's work when I left school at 16. But 
I found it increasingly difficult and sometimes boring uh, when trying to, because especially after the show, like I wanted to, I wanted to be like you. So I started trying to read what you had read, or uh, as I've learned from this book, you didn't always fully read because uh, some of it was dull um, and hard, but I, uh, I found it incredibly hard. And so what I loved about this book and what I loved about the show is that for dummies like me, because we all know that in real life, I'm the real Jason Mendoza. Just a dumb DJ <laughs> who uh, inflicts disaster upon everyone. Um, but I, it, it meant that I was able to underst- like understand and go back to and be able to pass on these important lessons. And I wonder if that is like a big part of your cause is to try to make this accessible because we need it more and more, more than ever. Yeah, certainly. And, and I'm not uh, at all immune from finding philosophy in its original forms bone crushingly boring at times it is so boring i mean it's one of those boring things you can read and i think i I, i'm saying that from a point of ignorance because i think if you're an actual like philosophy phd level kind of person it's probably not boring it's probably a lot more interesting than i would find it because you are just more well versed in all of the theories and you're so deep into it that the tiny little mundane things that these people are writing about have great interest to you. But for the average person, myself included, so much of the original text is just, it is word salad. It, it becomes like your uh, my eyes glazed over repeatedly when I was reading it, both for the show and also for the book. It's a rare philosopher whose original texts are riveting. Some of it I find riveting, like Albert Camus, in the myth of Sisyphus, which is a great book, like it's short. First of all, it's very short. Love and that. it's also, um, he's also like very clear, at least in translation, he's very clear about what he is trying to say and how he's trying to say it. And the ideas are easily graspable. Most of it is not that way. I find most of it is very dense and very hard to read. And it also is referring in an academic way to all this other stuff that if you haven't read, you don't understand what they're talking about. So I felt both when I was reading stuff to write the show and also reading stuff to write the book that like these ideas are incredible. Like these are the smartest people who ever lived and they spent their lives trying to explain to the rest of us, like what it meant to be ethical, what it meant to be a good person. What are some rules or theories that that we can offer that will help us as we mill around the world and bump into each other? And it's a shame, frankly, that the, a lot of the original texts are, are hard to read because it's inaccessible. Like the average person, and even the far above average person can't or doesn't want to. I mean, who the hell wants to read Kant right now? Like the world is very hard to navigate uh, without reading Kant. And if you, if you have an hour of free time, most people aren't going to sit down and crack open a critique of pure reason uh, just for fun. So that was the mission of the book was to say like, look, I read all this stuff or parts of it. So you don't I, have to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, I, I, not only did I read it, I then we had two philosophers, professional philosophers who were advisors to the show who would come in and teach us stuff. Like would actually conduct lectures in the writer's room. And we also had a big writer's room full of smart people who discussed it all the time and what we thought it meant and that sort of thing. And so it, that it just sort of felt like, wow, if I could take all of this stuff and try to just translate it into conversation, that more people than would, would engage with it than might otherwise engage with it. So that was the idea. That was the mission. Did learning all of this change you? 
Has it made an impact on you? Did you come into this already with these values or did the making of our show and did the writing of this book? I imagine by the time you'd written this book, you'd probably had four years to kind of mull over where you stand on most issues. But but did it impact you? I mean, me? yeah, of course it did. The joke I was going to make is that I was already perfect and didn't need any of this. <laughs> yeah. But then I thought that would sound uh, bad. Yeah, I mean, all, I, all known comedic writers are supposed to be the best guys. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, famously, yeah. yes, Hollywood comedy writers, top of yeah. the ethical food chain. Ethics, yeah, I think uh, I, I, I was always inclined in the direction of being a rule follower. Like mm-hmm. I, uh, I've told this story now many times. Apologies if anyone's heard it before, but when I was in kindergarten, I remember one of my earliest memories is of a of my teacher saying, "Okay, everybody, line up." And immediately getting into line and then looking around at other kids who were like goofing off and and still, you know, rambunctiously milling around and being completely dumbfounded at why they weren't lining up. It was like the teacher told us to do something. Why are you not doing it? Like it was I remember it being hard to understand. So clearly from a young age, the way to refer to this kind of person is a kiss ass. I was a kiss ass Mm -hmm. in the sense that I was like, there is a right thing and a wrong thing to do here. And I'm going to do the right thing because that's what you're supposed to do. I've always been oriented in that direction. You've always been a kiss ass. Is that what you're saying? Essentially. Yes. But as I've gotten older, I think that inclination has sort of hardened or matured or whatever you want to call it into just being a person who is concerned about right and wrong. And the worst moments in my life, I would say, are ones where I did something stupid, I realized it was stupid and wrong and had caused someone some pain or anxiety. And then I didn't know why what I had done was stupid. Like I, I, I remember at various points in my life being like, I know I blew it there, but I don't understand why. So philosophy was just a way for me to get a vocabulary. It's almost like going to therapy, I think. It's like you begin to talk about this stuff with professionals and you begin to understand why what you're doing is a pattern or is bad or is wrong or is unethical or whatever. And that I found to be a great relief. Like I I really became grateful for philosophy because it helped me to put a name or a structure to my own failings and faults. So now when I blow it, which I still do all the time, I at least can say like, oh, here's why what I just did was wrong, as opposed to just like sort of hiding in your room and feeling guilt and shame and embarrassment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was one of those sort of facepalm moments that led to the whole show. I mean, and led to this kind of big journey, which is the moral dessert of waiting until your barista turns around before you tip them 27 cents. You talk about that in the book hilariously. Yeah. Uh, Are you, um, now let me ask you, did did you feel that? Did you, have you ever done something like that? Did that ring a bell with you? Oh, I'm I'm sure I have. I'm sure I have. There's no, like, there's no way I was able to tap into Tahani without some like good old corrupt <laughs> motivations like, of my own to draw from. Um, I think a lot of us did. And, and it would have been completely subconscious. I mean, you said you did it like a thousand times before you actually yeah. clocked. You were like, why am I being such a loser? Yeah. Why is this? Why? What? What on earth could make me desirous of the, you know, back pat that comes from I tipped you 27 cents like that? That's what was so embarrassing about it. Like, I think if you donate a kidney, it's a little more understandable that you would want people to go like, hey, that's cool that you donated a kidney, right? Like that's an enormous sacrifice you made. Mm -hmm. Donating 27 cents to a tip jar 
no one should ever want the credit for that. Like that's such a minimal thing. And yet I had, I had that feeling and that was a, that like launched this weird rabbit hole where I was like, why, what am I doing? Like, why does this matter to me? And it's, yeah, it's one of the things that led right to the creation of the show. Which is amazing. But also you talk about moral dessert in a way that kind of like then turns into this bigger conversation and we're about to get into the glossary. So I hope you're ready of like some of the big uh, terms within um, philosophy. But you and I think have similar feelings of like, you know, when someone shares the fact that they've donated to a cause, that can be a bit ick because you're mm-hmm. like, why do you need people to know that you donated? But at the same time, there can sometimes be a trickle-on effect to the fact that they have donated. That's going to maybe maybe trigger other people into thinking, well, now they'll think I'm shit if I don't also, or you know, I want to be a good person. And so it can lead to a lot of corrupt motive-laden good acts of kindness. And so is it ultimately bad if doing the vain thing then leads to a very positive outcome? And the reason I think about this is that, you know, we've had a lot of celebrities to various results, mixed results, really, uh, speaking out about uh, subjects and raising awareness about things or raising money for things that maybe mm-hmm. perhaps they've never shown an interest in. And a lot of people cast an, an, uh, an understandably, like, you know, just suspicious eye over that being like, oh, you're just doing that to look good. But I always think when, that, when people are saying that about someone, does it fucking matter? Because then the problem is being solved. Like I, there are so many causes I care about. But I don't give a shit why someone else would get involved or if their vanity plays a part of it, their ego. I don't think that that cancels out the good deed. It just means you're a bit of a, you know, felon. Yeah, I, this is a, a subject I write about in the book. And where I end up here is the best version of something like donating to charity or raising awareness for a certain cause in a certain way, spending your time and energy and effort to like directing capital and resources at a worthy cause is possible. It's possible. I think that the very best, the most moral way to do it is anonymously, right? If you're Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos and you really want to fix education or global warming, then take 18 of the $250 billion that you have and quietly, quietly slide it over to people whose job it is to improve public education or the environment or whatever, because then you're doing the act for nothing other than the act itself. You're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. However, there are certainly times when, for example, Oprah Winfrey does something Amazing. She opens a school or LeBron James opened a school in Akron Mm. for disadvantaged kids in his neighborhood or whoever Bruce Springsteen does X, Y, and Z. And the fact of their celebrity brings more attention and awareness to this issue than it would otherwise if they did it anonymously. And oftentimes when we're talking about something like donating to charity, it's a pure numbers game. It's just There are a large number of people who need help in this arena. We require massive amounts of money. And so I don't care if you are a celebrity. I don't care if you're Tahani, basically. Like, I I think (laughs) we were pretty hard on Tahani on the show because we, it was a comedy show and we wanted it to be clear that she had corrupt motivation. She was the worst. (laughs) (laughs) She wasn't the worst. I wouldn't say she was the worst. But even though we were hard on her, I a little bit, end up on this on her side which is like okay so she wanted to she wanted to show up her sister she wanted her parents approval that's a very human and understandable character trait that someone could uh display 
And the truth is, is that the money that she raised for charity was incredibly important, valuable and meaningful. And so is it the best way to go about it? Probably not. But I also don't think that we have the luxury very often of doing something the only the best way it can be done. Like, especially when it comes to whatever, you know, hurricane relief. I don't care if your ego is is being inflated, if you are also directing massive amounts of resources and capital to people in terrible need of them. So but some you know, philosophers are very judgy about it, like which oh, we learned throughout the book. Like they have such strong rules that almost leads mm-hmm. sometimes the right outcome not being achieved. Let's do a quick, quick fire glossary just for everyone right. who might be like me, new to philosophy and <laughs> uh, and just looking for a kind of breakdown. And the ways in which we're going to make this as accessible as possible is to utilize like good place characters that spring to mind when right. we talk about these. So just truly just little nuggets of information. Little so nuggets. Talk to me. Yeah. Kant. What's his vibe? (laughs) Kant is rules and regulations guy. Kant believed that there is a right answer and a wrong answer to every single problem. The way that you determine the right answer is you use only your brain, no emotion, no happiness or fear or anxiety or anything else, just your brain. A problem comes up, you discern the right rule to follow. You act only out of a duty to follow that rule, which we all have. And then you execute that rule. He called this the categorical imperative. And basically it says you only do things that you could will to be universal. So when you do something, you have to ask yourself, what if everybody did this? And if everybody doing it would lead to a world that is bad or confusing or nonsensical, then you're not allowed to do it. And the second version of the categorical imperative was you don't ever use anybody as a means to an end. People are, he sort of held human beings in like the highest possible esteem. So he believed that people are ends in themselves, not means to an end. So you can't use people to get what you want. You, and so that leads to conclusions like, can you lie to someone, even a right. little white, tiny little white lie? No, you can't. Because if you're willing lying to be a universal rule that anybody could do, then you have to imagine a world where everybody's lying all the time. And if everybody's lying all the time, then nothing, the world doesn't make sense because every time you talk to someone you think, well, that person's probably lying or could be lying, and they're thinking the same thing about you. And even the thing that you're doing, which is lying, isn't effective anymore because now everybody's lying. So he was just rules and regulations, right answer, wrong answer. Your motivation or your intention is the only thing that matters. If something bad happens as a result of what you do, you're still clean because you acted (laughs) appropriately and you followed the duty to, to follow this maxim. And that was Chidi in a nutshell. That is Chidi, right. And the problem... Absolutely exhausting guy. Yes. The problem with being a Kantian in a nutshell is that it can lead to what Chidi was, which is you are so intent on discerning that maxim, following that rule, getting it exactly right, thinking about what would happen if you willed your action to be universal, that you're paralyzed with anxiety and fear and you never do anything and everybody hates you because you're annoying. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or he also, I mean, he, because of his decision to never lie, he struggles to even lie to a demon, even if it could get the rest of us killed. Like a perfect example you bring up in the book. Like it's, it's, it doesn't always, it just doesn't always work that way. Yes. Famously Kant designed a thought experiment, which when you read it, you're like, this is hilarious because this completely disproves Kant's theory. And then you're like, who came up with this? And the answer is Kant, which is very confusing. <laughs> but Kant believed that if your brother is in your house and a guy comes to your house and, and is, says, hi, I'm a murderer and I would like to murder your brother. Do you know where he is? 
Kant says you're not allowed to go. Sorry, I haven't seen him. <laughs> you're not allowed to lie to a murderer who tells you he is intending to murder your brother. You are allowed, says Kant, to say things that are true, but don't quite give the whole story. Like you could say, you know, it's Tuesday. And usually on Tuesdays, I know he goes grocery shopping. And um, I saw him yesterday uh, down by the docks. He was fishing off the dock. So I don't know. You could say that, but you're not allowed to actually say, I don't know where man. he is. Which so RIP to your brother. I know. Sorry, man. Sorry. Wild. Sorry, bro. <laughs> okay. Utilitarian. Utilitarianism is a theory developed in Britain in the 18th century and 19th century. And it simply said, we are going to maximize happiness and pleasure, and we're going to minimize pain and suffering. And the right thing to do is whatever maximizes happiness and pleasure and minimizes pain and suffering. Importantly, it's not the number of people strictly who feel happiness or sadness. It's not like if eight people are happy and seven people are sad, then you're fine. It's how intense the happiness or sadness is, how long lasting it is, how intense, how like a number of different things. And so like a utilitarian thinks it's better that a hundred people get paper cuts than one person takes a baseball bat to the knee because the intensity and the duration and the severity of that pain outweighs the collective pain of the people who get paper cuts. So it's very easy to follow. Like it's a very simple philosophy. It's very appealing in a lot of ways. There are certainly situations that call for utilitarian reasoning. For example, you would say, how do we give out vaccines for a deadly pandemic, right? Well, to maximize the happiness and pleasure of each dose, you start by giving them to the people who are at the greatest risk for severe sickness or death. And because you're, that's more happiness comes out of that one dose than it would if you gave it to some 22-year-old ding-dong on spring break in Daytona Beach, because that person, if that person gets sick, they're probably not going to it won't be that bad as opposed to an 85 year old diabetic who would likely die. So sometimes it's like, Hey, utilitarianism, great job. The problem is, is that when you start just trying to coagulate massive amounts of pain and massive amounts of happiness, the distinction between people starts to get really murky and, and subjective. It's a little bit subjective. Whose mm -hmm. happiness are we talking about? Like, what if there's one, there's a, there's a lot of problems with utilitarianism. One of them is what you might call like a hedonism problem, right? Which is if there's a person who gets enormous amounts of pleasure from playing Frisbee or whatever, then you might think, okay, well, at this summer camp, the only thing we're going to offer is Frisbee because even though the other 99 kids will feel really sad that this is the only thing they can do. This one kid gets such an enormous amount of pleasure from playing Frisbee that that total happiness is will outweigh all of their sadness. You start to get into these really dicey situations and utilitarianism can lead you to some really unpleasant places. There was a character on The Good Place named uh, Doug Forsett. Mm -hmm. You can see his plaque is right here mm -hmm. above my shoulder. Mm -hmm. Doug Forsett was a strict utilitarian who was aiming to like maximize his point system. And he, as a result, he had a terrible life because all he did, he tried to shrink himself down to this tiny little, like the little grain of rice, basically, who was serving as a, as a happiness pump for other people. So there's a bully in the town who is delighted by being able to bully Doug. And then Doug lets this guy, this like 14 year old kid bully him all the time. Cause what he's thinking is, well, look how happy it makes him. I'm increasing the total amount of happiness in the world by letting this kid bully me. So his life ended up being awful 
because he was trying to just maximize other people's pleasure and happiness, which I don't think anyone would agree is a reasonable way to live. Uh, a lot of us want to know if he was based on anyone that you'd ever met. <laughs> he was not. No, Doug okay. Forsett, Doug Forsett was the, the happiness pump is a kind of famous criticism of utilitarianism. Yeah. And I just knew I wanted to have a happiness Embody pump it. in the show somewhere. Yeah. It kind of feels a bit like we're in a situation like that now of like a demand, at least on social media, of like demand of like utmost moral superiority and perfection in a way that kind of is, I think, <laughs> holding us back a little bit. And I've been in like interviews and on my podcast preaching your show, our show, like The Good Place, because I feel as though that's a very dangerous place that isn't going to get us anywhere. You know, we're, we're, we're backing ourselves into so many corners where we can't even make steps forward, which sometimes sometimes you need to do something less than morally perfect in order to get to the next step to reach a certain person that will help more people in the end. And I, I think what I love about our show is that the, the overriding lesson is just to try to be better tomorrow than you were today. Like that's yeah. the only realistic, sustainable and like human, I think, practice. Absolutely. This is not a test you get an A on ever. Like it, it, it's, and it, that's not the way anybody should think of it. It's like a, it's a very, very long, slow progression. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, like it's at a, at a brick by brick level, you're trying to just get a little bit better than you were before. I think that's the only reasonable way to think of it. There's a woman named Susan Wolf, who I write about a little in the book, who wrote a great paper called Moral Saints, where she basically says, she argues that aiming at sainthood or perfection in a, from a moral sensibility is absurd. Yeah. Like it's, an, it's, an, it's not a good goal. It's impossible to achieve anyway. And one of the things that she said that I think is really apt is there seems to be a limit to how much morality we can stand. In other mm -hmm. words, not everything can be, you can't, you can't put everything through a moral lens because if you do, you are trapped in this endless cycle of just trying all the time to do something that's the perfect thing to do in that moment. And as a result, you don't play tennis or learn how to cook or play an instrument or listen to music or watch movies or, or by the way, tell jokes like nobody who's aiming for moral sainthood would ever try to tell a joke because they'd be so worried that they would offend someone that they were like, well, they, they would become a version of Doug Forsett. Basically they would just shrink into this little ball and hide from the world. And that's just not clearly can't be the way that we approach life on earth. It doesn't make any sense. What would Tahani have been, or was she be <laughs> better described as like, just to bring it back to me for a second. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> where did she fall into this? Was the moral desert of it all probably like her bigger kind of journey to kind of explain to the audience about corrupt motivations? Yes, she she doesn't fit neatly, I would say, into one of the main theories or in terms of like what her Achilles heel was. It was the moral desert issue of her her wanting a gold star for every good thing she did. Um, yeah, she was more would into say, narcissism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Her her problem was was a motivation problem. She wasn't doing anything out of an actual desire to be a good person. She was doing it for these other kind of it's her problem was actually almost a Buddhist problem. I would say like in Buddhism, the ideal that you're aiming for is, is mindfulness, right? It's like, it's just being present, being in the moment and doing the thing you're doing just to do it because this is what the right thing to do is. And she was never doing that. She was always distracted by fame and fortune and riches and, and familial problems and everything else. So 
that, you know, she, she doesn't, it's, it's easy to say Chidi's problem was that he was a, such a strict Kantian that he couldn't ever get outside his own head. And as a result, he was paralyzed. Tahani doesn't quite have one theory that she was writing a foul of. It's, it's a little bit of just her distraction or her, her like focus was always on the wrong thing. You and I were talking on the phone about how Tahani would have 100% coordinated the Imagine video. Oh, absolutely. That's a, per- that's a perfect, perfect yeah. example of what she would have done. Yes. But she also right wouldn't, place, but, you know, but she wouldn't have done it. Ass. Yeah. Like she wouldn't have done it necessarily because what she was thinking was this can help soothe people's fears. She yeah. would have been doing it because it would have, she would have really liked people saying, wow, it's amazing that uh, Tahani had all those people's phone numbers in her phone, right? Like that's like what she wanted, what she would have wanted out of that had nothing to do with, uh, with other people. It, it had to do with herself, right? It, it was like, it, she wanted people to know that she could call Gal Gadot on the phone if she needed to, so right? So yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite lines about Tahani is when Eleanor says, she just told me that uh, she was Taylor Swift's best friend, but Taylor Swift wasn't her best friend. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorites. Too. There are so many good ones that never made the final cut, like Leonardo DiCaprio one. There were just so many, so many ridiculous. We, I, I'm, so many the show ridiculous could only run drops. for four years in part because we just ran out of celebrities to say that Tahani was friends with. Like, yeah, she would have had to move on to TikTok stars. It would have been a nightmare. <laughs> what do you think all the characters would have done in The Good Place? I mean, one of the things that really has been fucking with my head is the fact that Michael gets dropped off. Let's just say the date of the final episode is the 31st of January, 2020. I have been kept awake at night thinking about the fact that Michael was dropped off at the beginning of a pandemic. Like yeah. his whole life he's wanted to be human. I almost want a spin-off of like <laughs> what that's like. He finally gets to like be a human, be part of the world. And then he's dropped off what in what I think is America, gets a hot girlfriend who teaches him the guitar. And then boom, lockdown, pandemic, the worst of humankind, like demons yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely being like, I feel like Sean either created the pandemic or Sean created QAnon. <laughs> QAnon had Sean written all over it. Uh, all over, but, um, but what? Poor Michael. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the optimistic way to look at this would be to yeah. say that he had basically just completed a very long course in human ethics, was put on Earth, and then a month later, all of those theories of human ethics came up for debate and he, he was like undergoing a trial. Like the, I, I would actually imagine, I mean, he would have been bummed definitely that he didn't get to like go to Senor Frogs and do a tequila shot, you know, uh, on spring break and all of the dumb human stuff that he wanted to do. But I also would imagine that he maybe was a little bit happy because he was like, Ooh, here's a good thing. Here's a good moment to test my moral reflexes and to be able to kind of engage in this human conversation that's happening. So the loneliness I think would have, would have been bad and the sort of isolation because all he wanted to do was be around other humans and have mundane interactions and say, take it sleazy and, and, you know, hold the door for it of an elevator as someone was trying to get in. Like that's what he was after. 
Yeah, just but, imagining him in his tracksuit, like tweeting, take it sleazy to strangers, <laughs> just like makes me so <laughs> depressed. <laughs> just Michael on Zoom. What a sad <laughs> yeah, lesson over I, Zoom. I can't quite, <laughs> I can't quite claim that I think he would have been happy because I don't think no. anybody has been happy. But there is, if you want to be an optimist, you might say that he would have been sort of weirdly excited at the prospect of going through an ethical trial, the way that we have all gone through ethical trials in the pandemic, yeah. or you can just that's say it's nice an alternate universe where the that. pandemic never happened. How about that? That's fair. That's, we just better. Say that? that's better. What would <laughs> Eleanor have done? Well, I mean, before what she went through on the show, she would have been totally fine because she never wanted to be around other people anyway. No, she I mean, a- Eleanor pre going to the good place, like that Eleanor's so- like core personality. I feel like at the very least, she wore her mask just under her nose. She yeah. wore it, but just like, I'm she, annoyed she, if she had to pull it back off. Yes, I think she would have like done the bare minimum to not get people because she she didn't want to follow anybody else's rules, but she also didn't like, she was annoyed by people talking to her or confronting her. So she would have been like the laziest possible follower of whatever the bare minimum of rules was. And she would have also flaunted them sometimes and gotten yelled at and been like, and rolled her eyes and pulled it up over her nose for one second before it fell back down. Like she is, she is a, a classic example of a person who doesn't, when something arises in the culture that where everyone is saying like, Hey, can you do your part, pitch in and help out? That's not her. Like she's not going <laughs> to, she's not going to partake in that. I also so, feel like original Eleanor would have sold like the veterinarian ivermectin to people. Oh, the actual, like, legit, actual horse dewormer. <laughs> yes. I mean, well, no, actually what she would have done is sold fake ivermectin to people. Like it would yeah. have been a double whammy. She would have been like, Hey, that thing that you really want, it's definitely what needs to. And she would have, she would have basically worked for a company that took Crest toothpaste, rebranded it as ivermectin and then sold it to people who were desperate for a home remedy. So yeah, I mean, it would have been awful. Like she would have lost a whole lot of points in the pandemic. Obviously, obviously Camilla like invented the vaccine. Well done, Camilla, for creating <laughs> mRNA technology, having never <laughs> been to school for it. Um, and uh, you know, I get trolled about Camilla every day. Do you know Great. this? It's no, but I'm years. so happy. It's the best. It's the best. Every single day, anything I post, anything I say, regardless of what it's about, everyone brings up Camilla. And it genuinely Great. is like the thrill of my life. I'm happy to play out that joke forever well um, wasn't there a wasn't there a moment where you were on a red carpet somewhere and as a as a bit the like e entertainment news or whatever put up camilla's name underneath yeah you? camilla al jamil it was one of the funniest things ever it was we, we, it was the first time we ever went to the golden globes it was one of the best uh, moments of my life um fantastic chitty would have stayed inside terrified in the hypochondriac with a stomach ache i think mm-hmm. No and then question. Jason started the pandemic, right? I mean, what a spooky, <laughs> what a spooky line that was. What was that? Season three? What was it that he said? Uh, it was another Megan Amram joke. It was um, that a, the, a flu was named after him because he he bit a bat on a dare or something like it was. I mean, <laughs> it was incredibly, incredibly similar to the actual scary. Yeah. 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 There were a bunch of things that we did that ended up being spookily accurate about the future like uh, that completely coincidentally but that one was just like that's bananas like there was also when when you all got spoiler alert sorry Mm -hmm. pause if you haven't seen the show when you all actually (laughs) when you all actually get to the good place there was that guy peltaball who who was Mm -hmm. talking to you i think and was saying like 
you were like, how did you die? And he was like, I got a cut on my hand. Like that's all it took back then in the year 3800 BC or whatever. And then he said, I would have killed for a vaccine, any vaccine. It's kind of amazing that you guys just don't like them now. And I think about that all the time when like mm-hmm. when the vaccine debates come up, it's like, yeah, what do, what happened? We just stopped liking the things that stop us from getting sick and dying. When did that happen? Why did we, Man, why did we my, take that? I, I know. Turn? I think that's why so many people went and rewatched the show over the pandemic. I mean, some people watched it. Someone told me they watched it 11 times during the pandemic, which is frankly a oh. bit much, but lovely and very flattering. And I completely understand it. I had a billion questions for you, but we are running out of time and I really want to get to the audience. So yes, let's uh, do it. Thank you for giving us a short course in philosophy. And everyone should definitely go and read this book because you will leave it so illuminated. But now let's move on to what the audience have been asking. Okay, so Lisa would like to know, what are some ways to strike a balance between being a good person and being a moral saint? Like, how do we know if we're going too far? And in Chidi's words, being super annoying. Excellent question, Lisa. I think that if you read that paper that Susan Wolf wrote, you will get a sense of what she's talking about when she says that there's a limit to how much morality we can stand. In other words, there's no question in my mind that ethical thinking is like a filter we should all apply to our daily lives that we should when we can try to aim for the better of any two choices that we're confronted with but there is also a real need to remove morality from the equation when you're talking about just flourishing as a human being this is an aristotelian idea like aristotle wanted people to flourish and the way you achieve that is by being finding the exact middle amount of all of these different qualities, these virtues, like, you know, generosity and courage and kindness and magnanimity and all these great things, all these great qualities. And he's, his whole theory was like, there's too much of those things is all is as bad as too little of them. Like we think of a person who is failing at something as a, usually as a person who has a deficit of something, not kind enough, not generous enough, not courageous enough. Mm. But in Aristotle's view, being too courageous or too kind or too generous is also a failing because it is removing time and energy and resources from your own life that could be devoted to something else. And so that's like, he, he was like, just it's a Goldilocks rule, like, right? Too much bad, too little bad, right in the middle. That's where you want to aim. And I think that the it becomes a gut level thing where you're like, if you find yourself spending too much of your time obsessing about a decision that's simple, what kind of shoes to buy or what tomato to buy from the supermarket, you are maybe aiming at moral sainthood too much. And you should just say like, look, I'm not going to be perfect. This isn't, I could spend the rest of the day going all over the city looking for the, for the most ethically pure tomato, but uh, that will mean I don't spend any time with my kids or my sister or my parents and I won't read a book and I won't listen to music and I won't have a full and flourishing life. So it just it it's a real kind of gut thing at, at some level that you just have to say like I'm going to care about this but I'm not going to care about it to the point where it ruins my life. I found it fascinating in the book learning about more about Aristotle. I'm going to say more about learning about Aristotle from the <laughs> beginning of my lifeline. I didn't know fuck all about Aristotle before the book. <laughs> so i uh and just the fact that he had such a realistic humane and quite chill i think chill is the word he would want uh, approach to ethics one that feels like 
it, it felt like the one that probably applies most to what we need now. Like everything's come, all these thousands mm -hmm. and thousands of years have gone by and all these moral philosophers have taken what was actually the most sensible approach to being a human being, especially in an, ever, in an ever growing and complicating world. And they just were like, no, 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 no. That seems far too easy and realistic. <laughs> Let's just pick this apart and turn it into the most convoluted it thing possible. The word humane is, I think, the right word with him because his whole thing was like, look, being a good moral person doesn't mean, for example, that you never get angry. Like you think of it as like, oh, anger is bad, right? I shouldn't yeah. get angry. His whole thing was like, no, if you never get angry, then you're going to allow for behavior to be exhibited by other people without comment or without any pushback. And that's not right either. So his whole thing is like, look, there's a right amount of anger to feel at the right people or things in the right amount. That's what you're trying to find. It's not like I can never lose my temper. I can never get upset because then someone's bullying a kid on the playground or a politician does something infuriating, like, for example, tell Boris. an entire nation to lock down <laughs> yeah. very stringently and then have a bunch of wine and cheese parties at his office. If you don't feel anger about that, then you're basically giving the green light to that sort of behavior. And that's not right either, because in addition to flourishing yourself, you want to also be trying to help other people to flourish and they need to feel when they have crossed a line or done something wrong or exhibited a quality in too great or too little an amount. So it, it's very humane. It's very, very uh, humanistic, his theory. And I, I think it's the one that we subtly and quietly use the most on the show. A hundred percent. And I think I, I think a lot of us as individuals probably use that mostly as like, you know, obviously there are parts of different types of philosophies. I'm I think because I'm British, I might be an unfortunate existentialist, but I <laughs> the more I learn about it. Um, but uh, but I think that is what most of us gravitate towards as individuals. Uh, someone asked me, one of the audience members, if we do acts of service, but resent them, are we still <laughs> a person? And I thought that was a great fucking question. <laughs> Uh, you're still a good person. Sure. Of course you are. Look, the, the, part of the problem, I think, with ethical action is that it's really annoying very frequently. It takes a, your time and energy and it means you're sacrificing something in your life, even if it's just a, a different thing you wanted to be doing. I have an enormous uh, amount of sympathy for people who just want to sit on the couch and watch sports and eat Doritos because that's what I want to do. That's what everybody wants to do at some level. And so when you get up off the couch and you go out and you volunteer somewhere, or when you take money that you could use to buy more Doritos and you send it to a charity, you are aware of the thing that you're sacrificing that would bring you a certain amount of happiness. And the key is I think to understand, first of all, that you should live your life in balance, right? Like just like Aristotle was saying, you shouldn't do only that, but you shouldn't do none of that. You should be somewhere in between. And I think it's only natural when we sacrifice things, when there's an opportunity cost to our time or energy or money or resources or whatever, you're gonna you're gonna have a little bit of like, oh, this is so annoying. Like I think that's very natural and very normal. And I don't think it means you're a bad person. It just means that you are aware of the fact that you are doing something that is not exactly what you want to be doing. I also think, by the way, that there is great value in doing things that aren't exactly what you want to be doing. If you have children, you will know that if you let your kids do exactly what they want to do all the time, they are monsters. They turn into monsters and that's not the kind of person that anyone's going to want to hang out with. And so part of parenting is literally just 
from time to time denying your kids whatever it is that they want to do. Like that's that's a huge part of parenting. Just saying like, no, you can't have money to go buy exactly the thing you want to buy now for no reason. And that act of just denying them some kind of pure hedonistic pleasure is a really good lesson for them. And I think that lesson should continue into adulthood. It's also only fair because as a parent, if you're a good parent, you're also denying yourself any kind of hedonism. Oh, I mean, <laughs> Waking all up the time. at like piss like, o'clock in the morning and just, yes, like, yes. just giving up all of the things that you want to do for them. So like yes. fair is fair. Parents like, don't, anything, parents don't have to, is just revenge. <laughs> I think. Well, parents don't have to go through the act of denying themselves things because everything is denied to you at some level. Like there's never a time. <laughs> it's so rare that you actually get to do whatever it is that you want to do in that moment. Overwhelmingly, a massive question that came in when I told everyone I was interviewing you. Obviously there were a lot of questions about penis flatteners, which was mm. disturbing to say the least. Sure. But, um, but aside from those, and this is a big question, a bit of a sad question. A bit of, it's a bummer to end on, but fuck it. I think you'll have a good answer. I, uh, with all these people, you've got Boris, you know, whining and cheesing, and you've got like Bezos going off on his cock rocket, you know, to space off the back of like, like Amazon workers that he isn't looking after at all and then daring to thank them for the fact mm. that he gets to go and do this in his cock rocket. Um, mm-hmm. When we see so many of the bad guys continue to just be bad guys and carry on and not do any of the things that we aren't, we know we are supposed to do as human beings, like not considering what do we owe each other? Like how do we stay motivated to keep doing the good, hard sacrificial thing when we watch so many hedonists like go on to kind of like technically in a capitalist system prosper, even though they might be emotionally uh, bankrupt. I think this is maybe the, the number one question that, has to be asked and answered because Jeff Bezos, just as one example, just uh, he built a giant yacht in uh, in the Netherlands and it re- getting his yacht into the ocean requires the dismantling of a very, very old and historically important bridge in Rotterdam that he is paying for to have dismantled so he can move his yacht into the ocean. And then he's going to pay for the bridge apparently to be reconstructed. And it should be noted, Jeff Bezos doesn't pay taxes in America. Like he just never pays taxes because he manipulates his income in such a way that takes advantage of tax codes. It's extraordinarily difficult, at least for me, to find a motivation to do anything that is good or ethically right when you not only see people who aren't doing that, you see that the people who don't do that seem to be the most successful and powerful people in the world. Mm. It's politicians at the highest levels of governments. It's business people at the highest levels of corporate. Bill. Yes, like Elon Musk and and uh, Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins and a cruise ship magnate, hasn't paid taxes in 15 years. Not once in 15 years has he contributed one cent to the American coffers. And so you might be tempted to look at those people and think, well, the way to win the race is to simply act like them, is to not care at all and to actually flaunt the fact that we don't care because it seems to work. It seems to allow us to climb the ladder more quickly. And I guess the problem with thinking that way, at least for me, is that you should ask yourself, well, what is the race that they're running? And do you actually want to be running in that race with them? Because the race they're running is purely hedonistic and capitalistic and has no objective other than to accumulate wealth. Now, accumulating wealth, that sounds good. That's not a bad thing. Like I, I get why the accumulation of wealth and capital and power and status are attractive. 
but I don't think it's worth sacrificing your soul. And I do believe at some level that the simple acts of daily goodness and being a little bit better today than we were yesterday have an impact, a collective impact. If we would all do them, they would have a collective impact that would be meaningful in the world. And so I guess it's the case, as it always has been, that there is a path being described for us out there, which is don't care, be unethical, be ruthless, cheat the system, lie to everybody, like just destroy people on your way up the ladder. It just doesn't seem like a very good way to live or a methodology that leads to a lot of inner happiness. And so it's a tough sell. I'm not going to lie. Like it's a very tough sell. I'm, I'm arguing that you shouldn't try to be a billionaire essentially, and that you should <laughs> act in a way that essentially prevents you from being a billionaire or the prime minister of England or the president of the United States in some cases. I get that it's a tough sell. I just, I personally can't imagine living my life that way and being okay with it. There's a term that Bernard Williams uses as a philosopher that I write about in the book. He talks a lot about integrity and not, not the kind of integrity that we think of as like a very forthright person who is, you know, acts out of duty or whatever, but he's talking about your sense of self, right? The sense that you are a whole and complete person and you can't divide yourself into parts and compartmentalize and just act terribly over here while maintaining a good relationship with your spouse over here or whatever. And I think about that a lot. I think about the idea that if that, that what makes for a good life is a life of, of wholeness and completeness and integrity. And I think it's awfully hard to live that kind of life where you're casually giving the city of Rotterdam however many millions They're of euros. They're going to pelt him with raw eggs, aren't they? I mean, if they do, could anyone blame them? <laughs> like, no, the I thing. think it's great. I don't think they should, but it's like that. I just don't imagine myself being able to look at myself in the mirror if I were that kind of person who was like, oh, I'm not going to pay taxes for schools and roads and bridges and infrastructure and military protection and police officers and the health system. But I am going to give a lot of money to the city of Rotterdam so I can move my yacht into the ocean. Like, I just, I don't, can't imagine that I would be okay with myself if that were the case. And I guess he is. I agree. And it is like, there's, there are many reasons why it's lonely at the top, because, not just, I think, because like, oh, you're working so hard and you don't get to see anyone, but also because you've driven everybody away, you've driven everyone away. <laughs> like you lose everyone. There is, there is a tremendous loneliness. I imagine. I just want to say on the note of like Jeff Bezos, um, there was a, I can't remember where exactly it was in the world, but there was this wedding taking place on a yacht and um, there was a, a bridge that they were going under and there was a bus that just uh, the toilet wasn't working and they had to like empty out the the, the I think it was like a greyhound type bus and mm. uh, and so they decided to do it into the water that was the only place that they would be able to do it for ages so they did it into water not knowing that the wedding taking on the place on top of this yacht uh, was going right under them at the time and mm. um, there was poo everywhere all over the white wedding and so I'm not suggesting obviously that anyone from Rotterdam who might be listening to this should do that. <laughs> I was just randomly telling that story. You're just pointing out a no historical reason. fact of something just, that happened. We're yeah. sharing stories and ideas, <laughs> you know? And so that's just me sharing a story and an idea. Good um, Lord. You're the best. 
And I was really nervous about today because I look up to loads. I know, I know. I don't agree with it either. Um, but <laughs> I look up for you so much and I really love the unpretentiousness to your work and the thoughtfulness and the, the self-reflection that constantly carries itself through not just your, your own personal journey, but it shows through all of the characters that you've made across all of the shows. Like you clearly, I feel like you obviously hate some people, but you have a love for people, a love and an interest in people that really like resonates through the minutia that you point out in all of our little characteristics. There's a kind of unspoken affection, I feel like, for human flaws and characteristics in all of your work. Well, thank you. I, I do um, like Michael on the show. I am fascinated by how weird human beings are. I mm -hmm. really like the fact that we're so flawed and bizarre and have such weird instincts. And I think that the, the kind of most enjoyable journey to go on is to study those in some way, whether you're a sociologist or a psychologist or a philosopher, like essentially what all of these people are doing is trying to get to the bottom of why we're so weird. And I think that's a great course of study. Like I, I really believe that Trying to trying to examine the essential weirdness of human beings is a very worthwhile task, and that's why the book is dedicated to literally everyone who's ever studied philosophy. <laughs> like it's a 100%. pretty broad, it's a pretty broad uh, swath of people that I'm uh, talking about. But it's literally that's that's how I feel is that everyone who has engaged in this endeavor of trying to figure out why human beings are so weird and why we do what we do deserves an enormous amount of our respect and esteem. Well, I mean, this is a it's a this book is a very good account of why we are so weird, how to be a bit less weird or how to at least maneuver our weirdness in a way that doesn't negatively impact absolutely everyone else. Yes, that's uh, a good way to put it. It's a great book. I highly recommend it to everyone uh, and if I can get through it, anyone can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, love you loads, Mike, and thank you to everyone who joined in and stayed. This week's podcast starred Jamila Jamil and Michael Sher. The producers were Esme Bright and myself, and the editor was John Doughty. If you enjoyed the show, please do tell everyone and write us a review. You can tweet us at HowToAcademy and follow us on all the other big social platforms. Even better, you can subscribe to our mailing list and find out about all the live streams, masterclasses, live events and podcasts we have coming up in the spring. Until next time... I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>